According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22 and verse 12, where we left off a week ago and where we're going to pick right up again here this morning. We have a violent overthrow that happens in verse 12. There's been a lot of mention of insurrection in the news lately. And uh, this verse addresses those kind of concepts with uh, he overthrows the words of the treacherous man. So I want to pick up where we ran out of time a week ago. Before we do get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness, rejoicing in the uh, blessings of the Word of God as it goes forth, as we take it in, as we live it out for the glory of Jesus Christ. And Father, in all the places around the country and around the world that, uh, that you send your truth, we know that it does not return void but accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. So yeah, it was kind of fun on Sunday, wasn't it, to meet some uh, visitors and find out that the Word's going in places we didn't even know where the Word's going and just uh, give all the glory to Jesus Christ for what He does. Well, as we're looking at uh, really this section here, down through verse uh, 16, uh, we have verses 1 through 16, we have uh, really a miniature book of Proverbs right here in 16 verses. We have a, a, a summary of everything that we've studied for the first 21 chapters that all gets kind of rehashed and, and encapsulated here in, uh, at the end of this portion. There is a significant contextual break starting with verse 17, uh, the words of the wise. And uh, depending on what Bible translation you're reading, uh, your, your publisher may or may not have put a little uh, pericope heading in there, a little publishing blurb in there. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to verses 17 and following because it really stretches through the rest of chapter 22, 23, and most of chapter 24. Uh, the words of the wise are sometimes broken down into 30 different sayings there. So we'll talk about that as we reach that point of time. For today though, as we've been outlining this with subpoints A through K, we're going to work our way through L, M, and N as well. But uh, a week ago we were dealing with verse 12 talking about forcefully overthrowing Satan's agents. Forcefully overthrowing Satan's agents. And this is necessary if you want to preserve knowledge. If uh, you, know, you're, you want to be faithful in the truth but you're the only guy in town faithful with the truth and everybody else is putting forth these lies then uh, that, that requires some conflict, that requires confrontation, that requires standing for the truth. We do this and God does this. This is, this is important to understand that God is the God of truth and He upholds His own Word. He has magnified His Word in accordance with His own name. And He defends His name with a jealousy that we understand. And so when we read it again in verse 12, the eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge. Now when we talk about the eyes of the Lord we're dealing with God's omniscience. We're dealing with God's personal awareness of everything in every place. And so uh, he does, his eyes do roam to and fro. He does observe everywhere. 
And uh, this is an application of his omnipresence and his omniscience, that he knows everything. And in knowing everything, being the source of all knowledge, and in knowing everything as he observes it, uh, when he observes the lies, when Satan's agents are are, uh, falsely uh, lying and leading uh, uh, human beings astray, well then God defends that. And so we see the principle here. He preserves knowledge. But he overthrows the words of the treacherous man. The treacherous man. And when you venture forth into treachery, that speaks of betrayal, that speaks of there's violence in treachery. And so uh, if we think that now this is a verse that's only highlighting God's violence. No, the overthrow activity that God does, yes it is a violent overthrow, but it's in response to the violent treachery that is being accomplished by Satan and his agents in, uh, in the uh, pursuit of their plan and program. So um, I, I take Proverbs 22.12 and I put it in connection with uh, Titus chapter 1, recognizing that God's servants have to be fellow workers with God in this regard, including pastor teachers of local churches. The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. And so this is part of the stewardship responsibilities in a local church for an elder, for an overseer, for a pastor teacher in, uh, in this capacity. And you'll notice, in addition to the character traits that are mentioned in verses 7 and 8, that you have in verse 9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. So you have the sound knowledge of the Word of God that, that is in, in accordance with the whole counsel of the Word of God. So that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine, that's feeding his flock and, and urging the faithful to, uh, to absorb it, to study it, to accept it, to live it out. Able to both exhort in sound doctrine and, here's where the conflict comes in, to refute those who contradict, those who contradict. Because remember, the faithful word that's in accordance with the teaching, that's sound doctrine. And if you're contradicting sound doctrine, what are you, what are you supporting? <laughs> you know, if you're contradicting the truth, well then you are supporting a lie. And that's what it comes down to. If you're contradicting sound doctrine, then you are a promoter of false doctrine. That you are uh, in opposition to the faithful word. If you're not supporting the faithful word, then you're putting forth the faithless lie. And so all of these things I think speak to what Proverbs 22.12 is addressing here. The, um, uh, preserving of knowledge. The preserving of knowledge. That we teach it, we preserve it, we pass it on to the next generation and we're only one generation away from this disappearing from a land. And uh, when God uh, decrees that a land is given over to a doctrinal famine, uh, that's, you know, the book of Amos addresses that. When there's a doctrinal famine, that's worse than, than food and water uh, famine, I think, uh, because man shall not live by bread alone, right? I mean, the, the priority of doctrine is, is greater than the priority for food and drink. And so if a, if a land is given over to a doctrinal famine, that's, that's tragic. And, and I'm starting to wonder about our nation because I'm not seeing the younger men coming up and I'm seeing more and more of the older men that are dying and retiring in empty pulpits and where are the younger men? You know, uh, where, where's the training ministry of this local church? Where's, where are the men? You know, And um, I was talking to my deacons a couple weeks ago about the, the, do you know what B.C. and A.D. stand for? You ever heard of B.C. and A.D.? Well, um, B.C. and A.D. 
in this local church refers to before cliff and after Dan. You ever think about that? So before cliff, because he was the first one that we ordained, and then after Dan. We haven't had an ordination since, since Dan. And so the BC and AD uh, schematic applies to, uh, to different things. Anyway, leaving that with the Lord and trusting that uh, we will have future pastoral candidates and students and folks that uh, can proceed in this regard. Now I want to kind of bring in these other applications. We already saw the, um, the, the role of the eyes as speaking to omniscience and that's, that's pretty clear. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. So we have an expression, it's a metaphor, but it's a, it's a useful expression that speaks about um, God's awareness of what's going on. He's not ignorant. Uh, you know, like sometimes if you think your mother has eyes in the back of her head, that's because, you know, you suspect that she can see things you didn't know she could see when, uh, when her back was turned. Well, the eyes of the Lord are, are better than that even. They're everywhere. And it does speak to omnipresence and omniscience. Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. So this shows not only a general awareness, but a particular focus that God is watching us and He's listening for our prayers and He has a, a loving watchfulness over His, uh, his children. Second Chronicles 16.9 The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed from now on you will surely have wars. And this is judgment upon a nation, upon Israel specifically, Judah, for their uh, hostility against the Word of God, even though he was looking out for them. Job 5, 11-13, and this gets us into really the, the final element on this slide here. The divine application of omniscience and a primary expression of God's nature. The kind of God that God is. What kind of God is God? Um, I still have in the back of my mind a desire to expand the study of the essence box, the study on, on God's essence. And, and what I really want to do is expand it out because I created a marvelous acronym that I was just in love with called PECAN, which is not just His essence and His attributes, that's the E and the A. And some people confuse essence and attributes, right? Kind of lump them together into one essence and attributes box. But there's actually more than that because God has a personality. In fact, God has multiple personalities because He's multiple persons. But the personality of God, the essence of God, the character of God, what kind of God is God? What is His character? And then of course His attributes and then His nature. He's gracious, He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And so personality, essence, character, attributes, and nature, that spells pecan. And I want to I want to get that published, I want to get that copyrighted and start collecting all the millions of royalty fees that, that come with that. But when we talk about God's nature, where He humbles those who walk with pride, where He is the God of truth, and, and the, the idea of a lie itself is such an, an offense. It's an offense to God's own nature and existence. Just like murder is an offense against God's nature as the living God and the source of all life. And when you murder uh, in the image of God, you are destroying the image of God when you murder a human being. And so these issues of life and truth are fundamental to God's own nature. Primary expressions of God's nature. And so as we 
want to understand that for what it is. Job 5, 11 through 13. And we see in the argumentation here, now we're careful with Job because a lot of times when Job's critics come in, they're incorrect in their condemnation of Job, but much of what they actually have to say is fundamentally true. As a, as a basic premise of, of wisdom, it's just they're off track when they're, when they're assigning guilt to Job. So um, we, can, we can see truth that's reflected here, and this is chapter 5. Um, so call now, is there anyone who will answer you? You know, if, 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 if Job is in the right, then the God of righteousness should answer him. If Job is in the wrong, then the God of righteousness won't be answering him because he has to get adjusted to the, to the righteousness of God. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? Well, that's a problem. We don't pray to the angels. Why would we be turning to one of the holy ones? For anger slays the foolish man and jealousy kills the simple. So you see he's starting to condemn Job, probably with his own issues more than Job's issues of anger and jealousy. I have seen the foolish taking root and I cursed his abode immediately. And so here's, you know, Eliphaz and his uh, great um, uh, uh, personal experience based upon what he has seen, his, his background in, in the ministry. And uh, I'm pretty sure this is Eliphaz, right? The, the continuation of Job chapter 4. Yes, it's Eliphaz. Eliphaz the Temanite. All right. And so he continues here in chapter 5. So what I, according to what I have seen, the foolish are taking root. So I cursed his abode immediately. Now beyond anything else that applies to blessing and cursing and whatnot, but a communicator of the Word of God, recognizing um, cursing the abode of the foolish, does have a, a, a concept that, that lines up with overthrowing the wicked, overthrowing the words of the treacherous man. That if there is somebody that's hostile to the Word of God, then we're hostile to their Word of God hostility, right? And, uh, and so Eliphaz is not wrong so far as that goes. He's just wrong to be cursing Job, to be applying Job or assuming that Job is speaking in foolishness. All right. His sons are far from safety. They're even oppressed in the gate. There is no deliverer. His harvest is uh, the hungry devour and take it to places of thorns, and the schemer is eager for their wealth. Uh, Affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. I mean, these things just don't happen. It's not like in the morning when the dew arises and you say, well, that's just what it does, okay? Um, Affliction and trouble, if you're encountering this, Job, it's because you, you deserve it. It doesn't just happen for no reason. This is happening to you, so you need to repent. And then he says, man is born for trouble, as sparks fly upward. We're, we're fallen creatures in Adam, that's what it is. But as for me, you know, if, if it was me, Job, here's what I would do, going through what you're going through. Seek God. <laughs> as if he hasn't been doing that already. Okay? I would seek God. I would place my cause before God. What do you think Job was doing in chapter three? In chapter three, right? He opened his mouth and he lamented. I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. 
He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields so that, now notice, why does God do this? Why does God provide for human habitation? So that he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. So there's things God does on a daily basis like he he supervises the ecosystem, he, he manages the water cycle, he handles the crops and he handles the weather and he handles agriculture and everything that's growing. That's with uh, the rain and uh, on the earth and on the fields. But then he deals with human beings, the proud ones and the arrogant ones. So he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble. And he's lifting up the humble day by day just like he's making sure everything gets watered every day. He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. Remember he steps ahead of all these crafty people and, uh, and sometimes you know, he lets them do what they're doing but a lot of times he, you know, when, if he permits it, like when he permits Satan to afflict Job, he's got other purposes and objectives that he's going to achieve in allowing for the wicked to, to do what they do. He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. Well not always. Sometimes he lets them do what they're doing so that he can bring about something else. He captures the wise by their own shrewdness and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. It's somewhat amusing to me anyway that these are the very words that Eliphaz is speaking actually come about applied to Eliphaz, right? Applied to Zophar and Bildad, these three critics. That God lets them voice their, their untruth and then he catches them in it. And, and at the end of the book, Job has to pray for these guys because they're wrong. Job has to pray for these guys to be healed, to be restored. And, uh, and he's going to. But nevertheless, I think these activities are, are useful. It does describe what God does. And as far as um, and it goes on down through verse 16. I, I only listed 11 through 13 on the slide. But notice, just like he's sending rain for the fields, he's also frustrating the plotting of the shrewd. He's lifting up the lowly and he's frustrating the plotting of the shrewd. This is what God does. So it shouldn't surprise us in Proverbs if we find that he's overthrowing the words of the treacherous man. He's involved in human activity and he defends the truth. He defends the truth. How about, uh, here's one we saw in the book of Daniel. This is why Nebuchadnezzar had to live like an animal for seven years. This is why he had to go into the backyard and was given the mind of a beast and he had to be humbled. He had to learn. And since he wasn't learning academically in Bible class, he wasn't learning from the, the truth that Daniel was teaching, he had to have the remedial Bible class called divine discipline. <laughs> and we all do. I tell you, there's things that we don't learn the easy way, so we've got to learn the hard way. And then God says, all right, you're going to learn this lesson. It's better that you learn it in blessing, but you can learn it in discipline as well. That's the remedial class. And so, um, yeah, so for seven years, the prophecy that was uttered regarding Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. Driven away from mankind. Okay, This is divine discipline. We are humans. We are designed to be in, in community with fellow humans. 
We're not designed to be animals. But he began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. But at the end of that period, seven years, and I think the, the biggest miracle in the whole book of Daniel is this one right here, that he gets his throne back. You know, that's bigger than a fiery furnace or a lion's den in my mind, that he gets his throne back after seven years. I mean, just read Babylonian history sometime and see all the, the machinations and the assassinations and the political maneuverings and all the, the things that happen there. But I raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. His reason returned to Him. Animals are not rational. When you lose rational thought, when you're given the mind of an animal, you're not rational. Humanity is rational. Animals are creatures of instinct, born to be captured and killed. So I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. So Nebuchadnezzar's got this perspective that includes angelity and humanity. And he understands that the Most High God is He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the God of gods. So uh, he does his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? So when God moves his hand, there's no one that can grab it and stop it or keep him from doing what he wants to do. No one can can question what he's doing or uh, challenge him on it. At that time my reason returned to me and my majesty and my splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out so I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Just like with Job where the glory at the end is greater than the glory at the beginning. Same thing with Nebuchadnezzar. That uh, surpassing greatness is added. And the only thing I can conclude is that it was Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego was the believers in his administration that kept the reins of government and kept ruling as stewards in his name so that he would have a throne to return to. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven for all his works are true, overthrowing the, the, the lies of the treacherous one as part of this. All his works are true, his ways are just, and he is able, here's the key, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. And to me that just links so well, that connects with, with our verse in Proverbs 22, that when he overthrows the words of the treacherous man, he is humbling those who walk in pride. Overthrowing those words. And, and, and he does so with a perfect sanctification. He does so with a perfect holiness. You know, no, no carnality on God's part, you know. And, and I will freely admit that's, that's something I struggle with. I struggle when I see, when I see the, the satanic liars, when I see them eat their own words. I get a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a thrill. I get a little bit of, a, of an amusement. You know, it's, it's fun, you know, when you, when you watch some, and, and it shouldn't be, it should just be sad. 
that you, that you voice such an insanity in the first place, you know, that you you, you know you're you're this nut job global warming person and you're stuck in a in a blizzard somewhere, you know, or you're uh, you 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 said that the ice pack was melting and now your ship is stuck in an ice pack and you have to be rescued uh, when when you promised that the the Arctic was going to be ice free by now and uh, and and here comes the the people to rescue. You know, I'm glad that they they didn't die. I mean, that would have been bad. But um, it, it's it's to me, it's hilarious that that they got stuck in the ice flow like that. Anyway, God uh, humbles those who walk in pride, and it's no fun to eat your words and 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 that. But um, but when you're spouting satanic falsehoods. And then it gets exposed for what it is. This is, who, this is who God is. It's a fundamental element. It's a primary expression of God's nature. Able to humble those who walk in pride. And then I think the most well-known ones to us, uh, you know, James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5. Um, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's not just a, a statement of His mindset it's actually a description of his daily activity. He is opposed. He functions in an opposing manner. And he supplies grace on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis. This is not just attitudinal, this is action. This verb speaks to what he does. He gives a greater grace. God is a giver. And he is opposed it's not just, see, some people say, well, I'm opposed to that, I'm opposed to that. You can't just say you're opposed to something and then not do anything. What are you doing? God is opposed and He acts in an, in an opposing way. He takes opposing actions. He overthrows the words of the treacherous man. His opposition is active. And of course, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another. Clothe yourself. All day, every day as far as I'm concerned. The, the metaphor of, of, of clothing, the, uh, the, the imagery here that speaks about getting dressed, well how often do you get dressed? I, I get dressed every day, how about that? You know. So when it says clothe yourself with humility, that means you start your day in prayer and you're going to humble yourself and you're going to wear that garment all day long if you can. Stay in fellowship. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for God is opposed to the proud. Again, that's action. God actively opposes the proud and God actively supplies grace to the humble. It's not just attitudinal, it's action on God's part. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. So, that's what we're dealing with there. Let's move on to the sluggard in verse 13. We've seen the sluggard repeatedly in Proverbs. Are you tired of looking at him? You know, I mean, I think we see the sluggard ten times in the, in the, over all the chapters. The sluggard eventually reaches a point where his excuses are absurd. Proverbs 22.13 The sluggard eventually reaches a point where his excuses are absurd. I mean, how lazy can you get? And do you even believe your own excuses? Because I don't believe them. 
The sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I will be killed in the streets. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, sure. You, sh- you don't have to go to work today. <laughs> you know, Really? There's a lion outside? How common were lions roaming the streets of whatever village this guy lives in, right? I mean, yeah. I imagine every village has an idiot, but this... Uh, this the sluggard thinks I'm it, right? The sluggard thinks I'm the village idiot, thinking that there's a lion outside. Are you kidding me? You know. Um, anyway, you make these absurd excuses, like telling the teacher the dog ate your homework. Really? You expect me to believe that? Okay. How big is your dog? You know. Redo the homework. You know. Bring your dog here. We'll see if we can get him to vomit it up or something. Well, well, I don't believe you when you tell me that the dog ate your homework. You know, do you want to tell me any other lines? It just reaches this point. The excuses are absurd, but but it really comes down to that. Maybe he believes his own lies. Maybe he believes his own excuses. Perhaps he has been in darkness for so long that this prolonged um, sluggardness, this prolonged um, rebellion against God's design is now actually having the spiritual damage is, 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 uh, is, being, is being seen. Okay? And uh, I think this is a consideration as well. I think we can sustain this. Dwelling in darkness impacts capacity for rational thought processes. The longer you spend in darkness you believe the lies more and more. And the lies are purely irrational. Because anything that's rational is centered in truth, is centered in the Word of God. Dwelling in darkness impacts capacity for rational thought processes, similar to what we observe with Nebuchadnezzar. His, re- his reason was taken from him and he was living the, the life of an animal for seven years. But impacting the rational thought processes. And, and so you, you get steeped in this. This is why we have to um, be on guard against those elementary principles of the world. The stoicheia of the cosmos will poison our minds. We will absorb attitudes. And then having absorbed attitudes, we will start to reflect those attitudes. And then our thinking is going to be impacted. And then our thinking is going to start to um, be worldly rather than godly in our, in our thought processes. Not rational but spiritually poisoned. Okay? And uh, one of the first things that slips in there with the, uh, the worldly thinking is that, you know, sin's not so bad. Okay? Or that, oh, well, you know, the Bible isn't everything. Okay? And we start to, we have these attitudinal drifts that then impact how we process, how we think, how we, our outlook on different things. And so you're going to see this progression even get worse. By the time we get to Proverbs 26, where it gets uh, expanded even more so, the sluggard says there is a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. It's just rolling over, rolling over, rolling over, never getting out of bed, of course. You know, just as the door on its hinges, one way, then the other way, then one way, then the other way. Never really goes anywhere. The door just sits there in the door frame the whole time. That's the same thing with a sluggard. 
never gets out of bed. He just rolls over from one side to the other side to the other side. Even sings a song about how lazy he is. Um, and it gets so bad, he buries his hand in the dish and he's weary of bringing it to his mouth again. You know, he just can't bring himself to... I mean, it was bad enough, he actually had to put his hand in a dish. Okay? That was bad enough. But the idea that now I've got to bring food to my mouth? Are you kidding me? I already reached out to grab the food. Wasn't that enough? How much work do you expect me to do? So you see how absurd this is. The excuses are absurd. The actions get even more absurd. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. So forget logic. Forget anything rational. And even a second person that tries to approach you with logic, a third person, a fourth person, there can be seven people telling you, explaining everything, why your lifestyle is not biblical and why you're, you're facing these divine uh, discipline consequences for your uh, anti-biblical rebellion. Slugger doesn't care. He knows better than all of them put together. He's wiser than all seven of those, those guys. In fact, they're dummies. They're fools. How, you know, what, who do they think they are believing the Bible? Don't, don't they know that that's old-fashioned and primitive and mythological? And Come on, he lives in the real world. And you start to wonder if our culture isn't reaping the whirlwind now because um, the people have been paid not to work and they can make more money not working than they can make working, so why would they work? Well, wiser in their own eyes, aren't they? And now we're facing it. So yeah, wiser than seven men who can give a discreet answer. There's more. I, I like Proverbs 26. Anyway, Proverbs develops the sluggard character with increasing descriptions of patheticness. I don't know if patheticness is a word, but I'm using it. Proverbs develops the sluggard. And we, we started way back in chapter 6, but we get these, this progression each time we come back to it. Increasing descriptions of patheticness. Where the passage we just read in, in chapter 26 is kind of the pinnacle. The idea that Reaching your hand into the plate is, you know, that's, that's enough for one day. That's, uh, that's as far as you can get it. Because just bringing the food to your mouth, that's, that's outrageous. That's beyond the pale. Proverbs develops the sluggard character with increasing descriptions of patheticness. And I'm kind of glad that chapter 26 kind of ends it there because I'd be afraid to read what would happen in later developments. How much worse can it get? With this, uh, with this sluggard character. So really there's ten of them there, starting with chapter 6. We, we've covered nearly all of them. Um, starting with chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 13, 15, 19, 20, 21, 22. That's eight of them, right? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. So this morning we'll get to chapter 22. That's the eighth time now that we've encountered the sluggard. And then uh, the ninth one will come up in chapter 24 and the tenth one we just read is, uh, is the long one there in chapter 26.
Don't know if we need to read all these. We've studied them already. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. And this is in the in the parental wisdom portion. The first nine chapters are designed for children. This is designed uh, for parents pleading with their children to to uh, live in the Word of God, to study doctrine, to even you know look at natural revelation and learn what you can learn from the animal example. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? And this is where the children learn the little sing-song um, ditty. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Well, you might sing that when you're a kid, but if you're still singing that as an adult, there's a problem. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. I don't think it's accidental either here in Proverbs 6 that we go from the sluggard to the belial. We go from the sluggard to the worthless fellow, the wicked man. Anyway, that's Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 and 9. The sluggard was also in chapter 10. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. That's no fun. (laughs) Right? You want a big mouthful of vinegar? Who wants to wash that down? Yeah, Or smoke in your eyes? That's not pleasant. So is the lazy one to those who send him. So the sluggard isn't just damaging himself, he's an irritant to the people that expected more of him. To people that had assigned duties to him. Whoever it is that sent him um, there's quite an irritation to the to the sender because the sent one is a sluggard. Chapter 13 and verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves. See, there's damage that gets done. There is a, a soul appetite. And the sluggard is not has no capacity to meet that soul appetite. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. But the soul of the diligent is made fat. So the attitudinal uh, expression of diligence, the eagerness, the willingness to to serve God, to grow in the Word of God, to to work, to produce, to contribute in your uh, community, that's the soul of the diligent. And there's a soul benefit from that. It's nutritious to the soul. That soul of the diligent is, 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 is healthy. The Bible always expresses fat in the sense of a, of a healthiness, okay? And uh, as opposed to craving and getting nothing. So soul effects. Understand when you're living the Word of God, there are benefits to your soul. The way of the lazy is as a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. And so beyond just, it's not just a personality quirk. It's not just, uh, you know, to your detriment, uh, just in terms of your personality, but it has a, a, a spiritual effect in, in terms of your, your course, your life, your way, and um, obstacles that come in. God puts those there. Those obstacles are there. God puts them there. Your own laziness puts them there. The path of the upright is a highway. It should be a wake-up call to say, why are these hedges everywhere? What's up with these, these thorns? 
And uh, what's unfortunate is instead of being the wake-up call that, that, that sparks the repentance, that causes the sluggard to, to, to humble himself and say, Lord, I'm a sluggard. I need, to, I need to be diligent. I need to be upright. Notice it's a righteousness issue because the contrast is upright. Um, that the lazy is, is not upright. Okay? And, it, and those, those thorns should just wake you up to say, man, God's put these in my path. I, I, need to, I need to be upright. I need to be walking right. I need to get busy with, with His calling and everything else that He's got for me. And then as soon as you do humble yourself and all your ways acknowledge Him, what's He going to do? He's going to make your path straight. Welcome to the highway. Okay. Sadness is though, all too often I think the sluggard looks at that hedge of thorns and instead of responding to the divine rebuke he then uses that as one more excuse for why he can't do anything. Oh well look at the thorns I can't go there. Okay. And so even the hand of God's discipline just the, the sluggard uses that to feed his own excuse making. A wise son makes his father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. Yep, it goes right there with the uh, principle of a sluggard. 1924. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but will not even bring it back to his mouth. We saw that from chapter uh, 26. Chapter, but you see the intensification of this. Proverbs 20 and verse 4. The sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. See, he's done the bare minimum, and he felt, okay, I've done enough. But he didn't go long enough, and sure enough, he's going to run out. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving while the righteous gives and does not hold back. So again, we have a contrast with the upright, we have a contrast with the righteous, we have the capacity, both directions here, the capacity for blessing others. The slugger doesn't have any capacity. He, there is nobody that he can bless, he can't even feed himself. And it's going to put him to death. When you refuse to work, how are you supposed to eat? The, the Second Thessalonians says, if a man will not work, neither let him eat. That uh, eating is the reward for working. And I don't know about you, I like to eat. <laughs> and why are you refusing to work? Humanity is in the image of God. God is a worker. God is productive. God accomplishes things. And God is well pleased in His own production. Refusing to work is, uh, is the antithesis of God's design. Of course, 22.13, that's where we are this morning. There's a lion outside, I'll be killed in the streets. 24.30, I passed by the field of a sluggard and by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. The word there is heart, lave or lavav. And when you're lacking heart, you've got a heart deficiency. This is a, it's an expression of, again, more soul damage that gets done. And it's soul damage to the core of your being. The heart is the core of your being. And so not only are you impacting your soul, you're impacting your very heart, your very, the very core of your soul. And uh, this is what happens with the sluggard. The prolonged uh, time as a sluggard is doing heart damage. 
Behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles. And uh, its stone wall was broken down. Well, that didn't just happen overnight. Why wasn't he maintaining it? Too lazy. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. So sometimes God puts the sluggard on display to warn everybody else, don't be this guy. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Remember that song you learned when you were a kid? You're still singing it. That's a problem. Your poverty will come in as a robber and you want like an armed man. And your dad told you that back in the parental wisdom portion of the book. Now it gets restated here in chapter 24. And then we've already read 26, 13 through 16. So that's the sluggard. Alright, that's the sluggard. And it was, uh, it was an issue for ancient Israel. That's why it gets featured in Psalms and Proverbs the way that it does. It gets featured in um, not, not just the, the poetic books, but we see illustrations of it throughout uh, Kings and Chronicles. We see uh, different, uh, you know, you think about the, uh, the, the youths that were, had, you know, they didn't have any productive things to do, so they could just, you know, hang out in the roads and harass Elisha, and then uh, calling him baldy, baldy, and whatever. And, and then uh, well, the happy ending to that story, of course, involved the two she bears that came and devoured those 42. <clears throat> hoodlums, can I call them hoodlums? Gangbangers, thugs. We're not supposed to call them those kind of things these days, but that's what they are. Okay? Vagrants, whatnot. I, I think the biblical vocabulary is useful. I try to be as biblical as I can. But Israel had to deal with it, Rome had to deal with it, um, bread and circuses were to keep the rabble content. Um, the early church had to deal with it, Paul had to deal with it, and uh, gave the instructions that uh, you know, if a man doesn't work, neither let him eat. Then you gotta deal. Don't don't regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. All right. Now we got the sexual sins. I got 13 minutes left. We get to Proverbs 22:14, and we're talking about again fornication. The mouth of an adulteress. The mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. Let's get that up there. Proverbs 22, 14. The mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. And of all of the... um, well, of the body parts we can talk about, of the, the strange woman. Um, the mouth is what's addressed. Because it's with the mouth that she seduces, that she speaks the word that she speaks, that she conveys the lies that she conveys. And so she flatters and she lies and she, um, she says the things that she says. And beyond anything else of the physical, of the, of the overt act and the the other physical things that they do when they fornicate. But the real issue, the, the, the tragedy is, of course, is that the carnality happens long before the sex. The, the carnality happens with the thinking, with the attitude, with the decision to, to do the activity. And so just listening to the liar, just listening to the, the words of the treacherous, that's why 
They've got to be overthrown. That's why they've got to be cast down. So it really it's, a, it's kind of a neat tandem here in verse 14 because in verse 12 we have the words of the treacherous man. Now in verse 14 we have the mouth of the adulteress or the strange woman. And um, they're, they're both problems. You've got to stop them both. And if you allow her to keep seducing and keep lying and keep influencing uh, the, the victims, and, and they're, they're willing victims, trust me, um, they've got to quit listening to her. They've got to listen to wisdom. They've got to listen to Jesus Christ instead. That's why we have Lady Wisdom that's presented in, in, instead of the, the, uh, the woman of folly, again, in those early chapters of Proverbs that we studied. But notice, a deep pit. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. Cursed of the Lord. There is, there is uh, a spiritual component that we have to consider first, before the physical. There is an actual cursing from the God who should be blessing. Okay, And the God who does bless has a sexual blessing provision and it's called marriage. And uh, when you violate that, then instead of sexual blessing, you end up with a sexual cursing. So the cursing of the Lord. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. All right. So understand, and we're going to see some broader pictures here, more than just the physical. Fornication is a soul-spirit-body activity. Fornication is a soul-spirit-body activity, just like marital relations are a soul-spirit-body activity. And it's more than just bodies being connected, souls are being connected, spirits are being connected. Assuming, of course, that you're both believers with living human spirits, your soul-spirits are being connected. But even with, uh, even with the unbeliever, any human being that is a soul-body, the, uh, the, the marriage bed is a soul-body joining. The two become one flesh, what God has joined together. So we understand there is a soul spirit or, uh, that is joined as well as the body being joined. You can't lose sight of that. It's not just a physical act. It is a soul act. And souls become bound to one another. There's an attachment, a soul attachment that happens with that kind of intimacy. It's also described as um, an enslaving uh, feature. Okay? Now, on the good side of things, with marital relations in righteousness and sanctification of a husband and a wife before the Lord, then we wouldn't use the word enslaving, but we would use the word um, well, maybe we would use the word enslaving, but we would use the, the bonding. How about that? Is bonding a nicer word? Uh, that there's a bonding between a husband and a wife. Okay? And that the, the, in, the, the marital intimacy just reinforces that soul bonding with uh, the love and the trust and the intimacy and the, and the joys of, of marital intimacy. And so that's a, a bonding thing. The problem is when you're bonding with the wrong person or the wrong people or everybody in town, then it's enslaving. It's enslaving. And I think this goes very well with uh, the, the warnings that we have in the New Testament 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. And we taught this in the 1 Corinthians series. I wanted to be very clear on this. I think it's useful if teenagers, if young people, if, if uh, college age, uh, if you learn this doctrine sooner rather than later, then you don't poison yourself prior to marriage. 
All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And this, is, this points to a very important principle, is that our souls and our spirits, our bodies, um, if we're not careful, if we're, if we're abusing God's design, then instead of being the master, we, we get mastered. We get controlled. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Okay, And so ask yourself, do you have mastery over the food you eat or does, does the food you eat have mastery over you? And under gluttony, of course, the food you eat has mastery over you. Same thing with drunkenness. Do you have control over the alcohol you drink or does alcohol have control over you? Are you the master of the alcohol or is the alcohol the master of you? Keep everything in the design as God provides it, things are great. Abuse God's design and you find that food is your master, alcohol is your master, sex is your master. Again, the body is not for fornication but for the Lord. And so you can abuse God's sexual design. Now, a husband and a wife in marriage, that's for the Lord. God has provided that. And so a husband and a wife, um, it's impossible for them to fornicate, okay? I mean, not with each other, okay? So everything a husband and a wife do together, nothing they do together would ever be classified biblically as fornication. They cannot fornicate. The husband and wife cannot fornicate together. And that's what the body is for. And it's normal, it's designed, just like eating, just like drinking. The, the, the sexual functions of our, of our humanity within the parameters God supplied. Alright, and God's going to do away with that too. <laughs> when we're absent from the body and face to face with the Lord, we no longer marry nor are given in marriage. Alright. So God has not only raised up the Lord but will also raise us up through His power. He's given us this walk that's the newness of life. Do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. And so all fornication is sinful and wrong but for a born again believer in Jesus Christ in the church age whereby we are in union with Christ it's just magnified even more. Do you not know the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. Notice this is even, you know, um, whether you pay her or not, it's, it's, it's irrelevant. If you're not married to her, it's harlotry. And even a one night stand is, is harlotry. You are one flesh with a, with a, with a, single, a single fling. I hate these words. Fling. What's a fling or an affair? Or we have these euphemisms and they're stupid. I hate them. Okay? Let's just keep it biblical. One act of harlotry. And you are one flesh. So how many one fleshes are you with how many different strangers? But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Notice, one spirit. There's a parallel there between one flesh and one spirit. And of course, within the bounds of marriage, you have both. One flesh and one spirit. Because the two become one. Flee fornication. Every other sin the man commits is outside the body. But the fornicator sins against his own body. 
So you're doing soul damage and you're doing physical bodily damage. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So when you take the temple of the Holy Spirit and you make it a temple of idols, how is that? I mean, that's, that's just as blasphemous as Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificing a, a pig on the altar in Jerusalem. It's an abomination of desolation that, that uh, is being placed in the, the temple of God. But again, I will highlight to the very top of the passage, I will not be mastered by anything. Paul is exactly on target when he points out that these addiction issues will enslave you. And food, alcohol, sex can all be addiction issues. Second Corinthians. Six twelve. Verse eleven says, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians, our heart is opened wide. And so here's a mouth that's speaking truth, rather than, of course, the adulterous mouth that was seductive and leading astray. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Again, there's the mastery, there's the bondage. This is what happens when you when you reinforce the wrong uh, activity again and again and again. Now you're under a restraint. Now in a like exchange, I speak as if children, open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. This bondage will enslave you and, and next thing you know, now you're in this, this uh, destructive relationship and you're stuck. What partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with the unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Say, so, yeah, but they're nice. I don't care if they're nice. Don't be bound together. Come out from among their midst and be separate. Do not touch what is unclean. Because the unclean rubs off. I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. So you've got to come up from their midst and be separate. You cannot be unequally yoked. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilements. Notice, defilements of flesh and spirit. When you're fornicating, you're not just defiling the flesh. Flesh and spirit. You are doing soul damage. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Alright, we'll pick up here next week. Lord willing, rapture pending. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for truth. Thank you for the sluggard. Thank you for the adulteress. Thank you for the, all the characters in Proverbs, Father. Pethy, the, the naive, the fool. We have all these characters, Father. And most of all, I rejoice that we have Lady Wisdom. We have the right kind of woman to embrace. And, and I thank you for the Christological truth that it represents. We recognize that Lady Wisdom is actually the Word, the living Word, your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray as we embrace our Savior, as we live and occupy with His Word, as we're intimate with our, uh, our husband, uh, just thank you for being faithful. Open our eyes, feed us on your truth. Might we live it out in a, in a way that pleases you and glorifies your Son. 
We thank you, we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.